just prior to the Buddha's enlightenment, they say he was considering what was the cause of uh, suffering and stress in his mind. and what way or method would lead to the ending, cessation of that stress, suffering. As he'd already been practicing for a number of years since he left his wife and child and went out into the forest. He'd already pursued a common practice at that time to uh, take up different uh, meditation techniques and ascetic practices which push one's physical and mental endurance to the limit of fasting and holding the breath sleeping on a bed of thorns, different practices that were common at that time. And he pushed himself to the utmost limit, became very skinny, very weak, but realized his mind was still not free from suffering. He'd also studied with the foremost meditation masters of the day in India and developed the skill of entering deep states of concentration, the samapati, the four rupajanas and the four arupajanas. But he was also aware these hadn't freed his mind from suffering, although they were very refined, peaceful states. They could not yet, or he had not yet uprooted suffering and its cause from the mind. So that led him to think differently. He had to really consider deeply what he should do, how should he pursue his practice. And so he had the intuition and the recollection of the time when he was a, a young boy, seven years old, attending the royal ploughing ceremony with his father at the beginning of the growing season. But being a child, he separated off from the main entourage and went and sat under, under the shade of the rose apple tree and just quietly sitting in the shade of the tree started meditating quite naturally because he had meditated for many, many lifetimes before and his mind became very peaceful and they say, reach the state of one-pointed concentration. 
the mind was free from all distraction, disturbance, very peaceful, blissful, rapturous, energetic and one-pointed. And just before his enlightenment, he remembered that and intuitively felt that was a good starting point for freeing his mind from suffering. So just to practice uh, anapanasati, calm the mind, bring it to that state where it's very composed, concentrated on the in and out breath, the feeling of that. But he also realized he would have to contemplate, develop wisdom and understanding using that state of calm as a foundation. So you could see even if you enter a state of calm, your mind withdraws from that. Different kinds of craving and attachment which lead on to suffering still arise, they're still there. He still had a wife, a child. You could see this was a cause of suffering in his mind, the attachment and the worry and the concern. He could still see there was attachment to his physical body, the mind's natural attachment to the body, pleasure and pain, identification with the body and we say the five candors form, feeling, memory, thought formations and sense consciousness. And as he meditated under the Bodhi tree he developed that deep insight that this experience of being born attaching to body and mind, the five candors, experiencing the suffering of them, aging, sickness, death, different kinds of physical pain, mental pain, stress. This had been going on for countless lifetimes, not just one lifetime, many, 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 many lifetimes. stretching back into the unknowable distant past. He contemplated that, you think about just one lifetime, how much pain, discomfort, having a body, and that brings us. And then mental stress, sadness, how much we can suffer in one lifetime, let alone countless lifetimes. If you imagine in one lifetime, maybe the tears you shed in sadness or anguish or worry might add up to maybe one glass of liquid over many, many years. Imagine how many countless lifetimes will add up to the Buddha said, we've shared, shed, we've shed more tears in our previous lifetimes, previous existences, than there is water in all the oceans of the earth.
that's how much stress and suffering pain and worry and anguish that we've been through that's how many tears we've shed so his search was for something that would lead beyond that we say that would transcend the suffering of a human life the word they use in Buddhism Lokutara Dhamma the transcendent Dhamma this is what takes the human mind beyond its normal craving and attachment for the world for the body for the pleasures the experiences of this world Lokutara means a higher or transcendent that which takes the mind beyond and it's the path that the Buddha described the method of practice the keeping of virtue development of virtue morality meditation and then insight and this is the path that takes us to beyond the world or transcend the world even though as we practice we still live in the world and we're part of the world It's developing the insight based on these states of calm and then reflecting on truth as we experience it that takes the mind beyond the world. Reflecting on the true nature of this body and mind, seeing it as impermanent, unsatisfactory, not self. Seeing it this human form is a conditioned thing subject to birth, old age, sickness, death all the thoughts and memories and pleasures are conditioned things as long as we don't see this then the mind is caught up and bound up with dukkha with suffering as things change the changing nature of this body is stressful as it ages, as it gets sick, and so on. The mind that attaches is stressful. We worry, we grieve, we get angry. We suffer in different ways. As long as we haven't seen and abandoned our craving and our attachment, So he directed his mind, his mindfulness and his intelligence, the wisdom of the mind to contemplate this, contemplate how the mind through its misunderstanding keeps attaching to these candors, to the body, to the feelings, the memories, the thoughts. As long as it does that, keeps identifying with them as a self, grasping at them, then this is the cause for more stress, more suffering, more birth, old age, sickness and death. As long as the mind is still caught into delusion, you keep grasping at everything with this sense of self, identification of self. 
This is something we have to investigate, and the Buddha investigate until he saw through that delusion, saw that craving is something that should be abandoned. It's the cause of suffering. Samudaya. He became absolutely clear in his mind, dukkha, what it is he got to know, be familiar with, be absolutely clear what dukkha is, and first noble truth, understanding what suffering is and seeing suffering as suffering, seeing the cause of suffering, craving, which is to be abandoned. Experiencing the cessation of suffering, Niroda, the third noble truth. Developing the path, Marga, that leads to the abandonment of suffering and its cause. Came absolutely clear in his mind through developing mindful concentration and insight in a very determined and thorough way. For him, having prepared for many lifetimes and for many years, it was an experience that came to fruition in just one night, in the night of his enlightenment. But for most practitioners, it takes uh, maybe many years and even lifetimes of practice However long, it doesn't really matter. We just keep practicing. Developing the calm and the insight that leads to this penetration and understanding of the Four Noble Truths. This is the Dhamma that takes us to transcend the world. It's the Dhamma that ennobles the mind, brings the mind to wholesome, wholesome, states, clarity, purity, brightness. And when we're thinking in terms of the noble truths, the four noble truths, then our thinking is correct. It's with samadhiti, right view. Ajahn Chah used to say, when we're still caught into suffering, it must mean our thinking is incorrect. We have wrong view. We're grasping at our mental states, our moods as self, holding on to them, so we suffer with them. Grasping at the body as self, so we suffer with it. Grasping at the things of this world as being mine, myself, sense of connection between me and and you, me and this thing, that thing. All that grasping is wrong view, wrong thinking, and leads to suffering. This is what we have to keep contemplating to develop right view. This is Marga. This is one who practices the Buddhist path, is developing Marga, the path. In the qualities of one who practices the path, they see the value of keeping, upholding the five precepts they know when they don't follow the five precepts they're suffering it's the cause of suffering they develop right effort right mindfulness right concentration right view because this is the path that leads to the 
abandonment of craving and attachment. So all their experience, they use the Four Noble Truths to reflect on their experience and bring their mind to correct thinking or thinking that doesn't lead to suffering, leads to the abandonment of suffering. You can see we, sometimes we have the clarity, we have the right view. We can see, oh, I'm attaching here, I need to let go, abandon this and I'll be free. And then other times we lose it again. We lose our right view and go back to wrong view. We start attaching to our feelings and the body and our thoughts and moods and we're back suffering again. You see when we're suffering and we don't have much insight or mindfulness, the sense of self is strong. We identify with the suffering and we become very self-centered at that time. You know, when we're very caught up in our suffering it's difficult to be Generous, been difficult to be kind to others and think of others. We tend to be bound up, caught up in our own problems and issues when we're suffering. And we can't see beyond it. Whether it's pain of the body or pain of the mind, we tend to just attach and identify so strongly that it blocks out the rest of the world at that time. So I say the most intense suffering, intense physical pain, the mind very, very agitated. Or the intense mental pain, the mind becomes very unstable, mentally unstable, mentally ill. These are the extremes of suffering that humans might have. But on a daily basis we can still see the mind keep, keep slipping into its attachments, just in small ways, you know, we attach to a thought or a feeling, a sensation. We attach to some opinion or view. So just in more mundane, ordinary ways, attachment comes up, we grasp, and then we suffer. But when we develop the path, we keep the precepts, we develop mindfulness, meditation, and then reflect and contemplate. This is bringing us back to the Dhamma, to truth. And we break through the delusion of self and the conventional reality that we're normally caught up in and confused by. And we break through to the transcendent Dhamma, the Lokutara Dhamma. It doesn't mean to say we can't live in the world and function in the world as we practice Dhamma. We can still perform our duties in the family and go to work and in society. But we take our experience as a basis for contemplation. We contemplate what's going on in our daily life, in our minds, in our bodies, in the world around us and develop wisdom in this way, using right view. I say the other day, someone <clears throat> talking about and they have a house and then they want to 
rent their house out and buy a new house so they like get a second house for an investment very normal thing to do nowadays if people have enough money they want to obtain more possessions and immediately that sense of self will come up won't it? I've got a house my house then you want a second house my second house these things belong to me then you get your second house you move into that and in the first house you rent it out maybe the tenants don't treat the first house so well because it's not their house so then there's maybe damage or problems the damage and problems is with the material side of the house you know, the bricks and mortar, the plumbing, the electricity and so on but there's also the damage in the mind, isn't it? It's the sense of self, the sense of ownership of a house. So we suffer. Oh, my house. My house is damaged. Damaged by the weather, damaged by people. Even if it's not damaged by these other things, just over time it will gradually degenerate, wear out, break down. <clears throat> So if you identify strongly with that house as my house, I own this house, and you're not seeing the impermanence of it, you're not seeing that it's ultimately not self, not yours, you'll suffer because of the attachment. Every little thing that goes wrong with a house, you suffer. The mind is agitated, worried, concerned, always thinking of the cost, the what the burden of paying off mortgage and insurance and repair bills and all these things you think about it one house already a lot of worry a lot of attachment a lot of suffering you get a second house if you're not developing right view and right understanding well it's twice as much suffering this is where the Buddha said we should look you know, just the things we have in our daily life. The things we take ownership of. We take ownership of this body and mind. We have identification, we have attachment with these candors, this body and mind. Already five candors is quite enough. Then you have a partner, that's another five candors. It's ten already. You have two or three children, yes. getting up to 50 candors to look after. Just one of those 50 candors is a little bit shaken in some way, and your mind is shaken because of attachment and identification. So if you have a partner and they're not happy, and you tend to be not happy. They're in pain, you get in pain. You have a child, nothing worries a parent more than a child falling sick or having some problem. The mind is shaken. And this is how our mind grasps at the world. The candors, our own candors, and then out to the candors of others. And the world, imperfections and imbalances and the changeable nature of this world means that our candors are always being impinged upon, shaken, agitated 
So the Buddha said one practicing, living in the world, as they develop this path, they have to make their mind very firm with mindfulness, reflect on the Dhamma at all times, and rely on much patience, endurance. You know, Jen Chao said you have to be as patient as a royal elephant. The elephant is a very strong, powerful being. In the old days in Thailand, the king had to go out and fight a war. They'd take the royal elephants out to lead the army. And a true royal elephant has to be patient and strong as it goes into battle because the enemy will first of all fire all their arrows at the elephants. See, an elephant has to take a lot of arrows, but it's not allowed to whinge, it's not allowed to run away. It has to be just strong enough, tough enough to take the arrows and carry on moving forward. And they say they'll win the battle if the elephants keep moving forward, the foot soldiers can come along behind, the archers can sit on top of the elephant, and they can win the battle. But if the elephant's a weak elephant, it's not really a royal elephant, it'll just run because of the pain of the first arrows that are hitting it. So they say we have to be like that. We have to be able to take a little bit of suffering and contemplate it, not just give in, whinge and run away. You'll see that probably the main obstacle to developing virtue, keeping the precepts, or the main obstacle to developing samadhi and concentration, or the main obstacle to developing insight, is that we run away from suffering. Instead of taking dukkha as a noble truth to be known and contemplated, understood, we tend to run from it. We seek distraction. We try to get away from our dukkha or we suppress it or turn our attention away from it. So instead of learning to see dukkha and then see its cause and abandon the cause, we remain ignorant. We remain not clear in our minds about dukkha because we've run away from it. We've distracted ourselves from it. And this might be just very kind of minor, ordinary distractions, nothing very big. We just keep thinking about worldly things rather than looking at our experience with mindfulness and wisdom. We keep thinking. We don't stop thinking, we don't stop and contemplate. We just let the mind run on according to its moods its opinions. We keep looking for different kinds of pleasurable experiences to take our mind off dukkha. So we like to find nice food, nice places to go, things to do, things to occupy ourselves so that we don't have to look at dukkha. But in the long run that's actually keeping the mind ignorant, is not getting to see or understand dukkha for what it is and not seeing the pathway to free itself from dukkha. 
So we have to learn to be very patient, you know, like the Buddha under the Bodhi tree. And the Buddha had so much patience and willingness to investigate dukkha. He said, I'm not going to get out until I finish the job. He was that patient. And I'll just sit here as long as it takes, even if my whole body just sort of shrivels up and withers away. I'm not going to get up and move away now. I'm just going to contemplate until I can free my mind from craving and attachment, free it from dukkha. We, we might not yet be ready to imitate the Buddha under the Bodhi tree, but every time you sit down to meditate or do some walking meditation, you do have to set up your mind, prepare it, so that it's ready to contemplate dukkha and bring up the path factors, bring up mindfulness. In the way the Buddha said the mind becomes enlightened or moves to enlightenment is the development of the seven bojangas, the enlightenment factors. So it says sati bojanga, you establish mindfulness, dhamma vichya bojanga, you investigate the dhamma, you contemplate. You contemplate what is dukkha, what is the cause of dukkha, craving. What is the way to abandon the cause of dukkha, craving? How can we let go of it? So you investigate the Dhamma. As you do this, it brings up more energy. The mind becomes brighter, you become more energetic, willing to put in more time to train your mind, develop mindfulness, contemplate the Dhamma, sitting, walking, less interested in these distractions and things that occupy ourselves with more worldly experiences. And you're willing to really look at the Dhamma and train. And this brings up effort, energy. With the energy, things get a little bit easier. It becomes more natural for the mind to develop mindfulness and contemplate dukkha. So with that, we start to get some rapture, some interest and some sense of enthusiasm for the practice. We feel better, we feel more good in ourselves, more relaxed, more calm. And this leads on to tranquility. We have piti sambojanga, pasati sambojanga. Tranquility of body, tranquility of mind. So we're actually at ease, even though we're looking at dukkha, letting go of dukkha, we're at ease. It's not like we're identifying with dukkha anymore. We're just knowing dukkha is dukkha, but it's not my dukkha. It's not me, not mine, myself, it's just dukkha, it's just an experience, just a, a body and a mind, feelings, thoughts, but they're not mine. So the mind becomes very tranquil as it contemplates and it becomes very firm, concentrated, samadhi bhojanga. And with that concentration and the reflection on the Four Noble Truths, then the mind becomes equanimous. Upeka becomes very calm, balanced, unruffled by dukkha, unshaken by dukkha. They call an upeka, unshakable peace, when it's upeka as a bojanga, as an enlightenment factor. It's that unshakable quality of mind that knows things as they are, but is not agitated or disturbed or caught up in them. And it can know a thought just as a thought, 
even a very kind of distressing, difficult mood thought process arising. You can just see it as it is, just a mood arising, passing away. There's enough unshakable peace to see that. See, the body is just a body made up of the four elements. The mind is no longer identifying with the body and grasping at it. Pleasure and pain, the mind not grasping at it itself. Just sees these experiences as they are from a place of unshakable peace. Just sees them arising, passing away, but not grasping at them, not trying to own them. And the things of this world, we can see, they are just as they are. They arise according to their own conditions, come up into this world, whether it's people or mountains or houses, but then they pass away according to conditions. Over time, things change. Even a great mountain will gradually wear away with the weather, disappear. Mountains that were little bumps can become big mountains with the pressure of the earth's crust pushing up. Big mountains can get worn down again by the wind and the rain. There's nothing that's permanent, whether it's yourself or the things around you in this world. It's this quality of unshakable peace where all these enlightenment factors are working together. It brings the mind just to know the nature of this world. It's dukkha, not to be attached to. When we can see that, even if only for a few moments, we say, this is maga, this is the path leading to freedom from suffering. It doesn't mean that one just disappears from the world and doesn't function anymore in the world. You're still living in the world, and still relating to other people wisely and kindly, doing the things you have to do, but you don't let your mind get shaken by it all. Whatever comes up, the mind is able to contemplate it with right view. When things go well, it's good. If things not going so well, you can still contemplate that. It doesn't change. The enlightenment factors don't change. It's not like they're only there when things are going well. Then when things don't go well, they, sort of, they go into retirement. You're able to contemplate the good and the bad. The pleasure, the pain, the praise, the blame, the gain, the losses of life, the successes, the failures, all become Dhamma. Ajahn Chah's description of that is in the mind when mindfulness and wisdom are functioning and there's this unshakable peace, then everything becomes just objects for contemplation. Whatever experience you have, pleasant, unpleasant, you can see it all as a Nietzsche Dukkha Anatta. He said it's like collecting mangoes. You know, somebody goes out with a friend to collect mangoes in the orchard and they stand under the mango tree and their friend goes up the mango tree, shakes the branches and you just wait at the bottom and collect the mangoes as they drop down. You don't have to do a lot. Just wait for the branches to shake and the mangoes will drop down. You put them in a basket. You, when you train yourself in meditation, mindfulness, wisdom, then you're just 
bringing the mind to the point where it can collect up mangoes, can contemplate things as they are, rather than always identifying and getting mixed up with everything and suffering with it. So we have some uh, more time for this meditation session. You can uh, practice quietly for, uh, until you hear the bell. <laughs>